Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. The 22nd day of the second month of the 22nd year. Two. 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 Tuesday. Become clear of your desires. Tuesday. 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 Spend time tapping into the universal energy of love. February 22nd, 2022. All is well. well. Everything's running smoothly. Yo, yo, yo! Yo! What is going on? My name's Hartzell, and this right here, it's your KC Malone. Show! Hey, hey! What's the word? Kansas City! Mmm, I love you, Kansas City! Lola, come here. Come here. The dog is yelling. She's screaming. Come here. You know what she's ready to do? My husky is ready to take back America, my friends, because every Tuesday on your KC Morning Show, myself and Professor Harvey K, Professor Emeritus over at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay, we take back America, reclaiming that radical history of America, social democracy in America. And today, since Professor K is on the road, we're going to be playing back some audio that he did back in 2014. He gave a talk. It's actually on C-SPAN. If you want to take a looky-loo, maybe follow along at home, he gave a talk on the Four Freedoms, which we talked about a little bit last week. So this is a nice a nice bow, a pretty little socialist bow on the Four Freedoms. I think next week we're getting into the Economic Bill of Rights, which the Four Freedoms is essentially the groundwork for the Economic Bill of Rights, the second Bill of Rights. But Professor K, we're going to get into that all next week. My friends, Ray review subscribe tell your friends about what we got going on especially on tuesdays our tuesday shows we're literally trying to change the world and i think that we uh i think we got a chance i think we got a shot in kansas city all right my friends without further ado professor k and the fights for the four freedoms my name's hartzel a good day a good ass day to be a kansas Cityan. we'll see you in the morning bye January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News Special Report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. First of all, I want to thank the National Archives staff for inviting me here to speak. Um, I've always had a special affection for Washington, D.C. Ever since I was 10, and I came down with the Boy Scouts and walked the monuments and Every time since, and my sister now lives here in the city, and every time since, I always come down, and the city's obviously changed since 1960, but I just cannot resist a walk from 
George Washington to World War II to the Lincoln, the Roosevelt, the Jefferson. So this is particularly thrilling for me to be speaking. Though I've spoken before in D.C., this is the closest physically that I've been to the monuments. There's something else that I, I want to tell you about my talk today, um, which, which would be only fair. I wrote the fight for the four freedoms not only as a historian. I also wrote it as an historical advocate. Uh, there are those who think we make too much of the greatest generation and its greatest leader. I, I think we make too little of them. In short, to give you a sense of what this will be about, I think we are failing to remember what made FDR and the greatest generation truly great. And in failing to remember that, we are not just failing them, we are failing ourselves. And it's that argument, that story, that challenge, which I now offer to you. We need to remember. We need to remember what conservatives have never wanted us to remember and what liberals have all too often forgotten. We need to remember what we've been trying so hard to remember. Now, especially after more than 30 years of subordinating the public good to corporate priorities and private greed, of subjecting ourselves to widening inequalities and intensifying insecurities, of allowing our rights to be threatened, and of denying our own democratic impulses and yearnings. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who rescued the United States from economic destruction in the Great Depression and defended it against fascism and imperialism in the Second World War. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who not only saved the nation from economic ruin and political oblivion, but also turned it into the strongest and most prosperous country on earth. And most of all, we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who accomplished all of that in the face of fierce, conservative, reactionary, and corporate opposition. And despite their own faults and failings, by harnessing the powers of democratic government and making America freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. Now, when all that they fought for is under siege, and we too find ourselves confronting crises and forces that threaten the nation and all that it stands for, we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the most progressive generation in American history. We are the children of the men and women who articulated, fought for, and endowed us with the promise of the four freedoms. On the afternoon of January 6, 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt went up to Capitol Hill to deliver his annual message to Congress. Just weeks earlier, he had defeated Republican Wendell Wilkie at the polls and won re-election to an unprecedented third term. But he now faced a bigger challenge, one even more daunting than those he confronted in his first and second terms. Still stalked by the Great Depression, the United States was also increasingly threatened by the Axis powers, Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, imperial Japan. And with war already raging east and west, Americans had yet to agree about how to respond to that threat. The president, however, did not falter. He not only proceeded to propose measures to address the emergency, he also gave dramatic new meaning, and I love reciting these words in this building, he gave dramatic new meaning to all men are created equal, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We, the people of the United States, a new birth of freedom, 
and government of the people, by the people, for the people. Roosevelt knew about crises, but he knew as well what Americans could accomplish, even in the darkest of times. Born in 1882, he had grown up privileged, the son of Hudson River Gentry. Yet long before becoming president, he had suffered serious defeats and setbacks. None more devastating than contracting polio in 1921 at the age of 39. The disease had left him permanently unable to stand up or walk without assistance. However, supported by his wife Eleanor and other family members and friends, he had risen above the paralysis to become the most dynamic political figure in the United States. Moreover, his experiences in the course of doing so had reaffirmed and deepened his already powerful faith and confidence in God, in himself, and in his fellow citizens. All of which, all of which had enabled him in the face of the worst economic and social catastrophe in the nation's history to say, there is no question in my mind that it is time for the country to become fairly radical for a generation. To declare the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. To insist that democracy is not a static thing, it is an everlasting march. And to proudly proclaim this generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. Propelled by the popular energies that his words and actions elicited, he determinedly launched the initiatives of relief, recovery, reconstruction, and reform known as the New Deal. Together, president and people severely tested each other, made real mistakes, regrettable compromises, and suffered serious defeats and sore disappointments. Nevertheless, challenging and pushing each other to live up to their finest ideals and aspirations, FDR and his fellow citizens advanced them further than either had expected or even imagined possible. Even as they confronted and dealt with harsh and concerted attacks from their powerful, conservative, and corporate antagonists, they not only rejected the sirens of authoritarianism, they also redeemed the nation's historic purpose and promise by initiating revolutionary changes in government and public life and radically extending American freedom, equality, and democracy by way of a great host of alphabet soup agencies and associations, from the SEC, CCC, and WPA, to the CIO, AYC, and NAACP, they subjected big business and banking to public account and regulation. They empowered the federal government to address the needs of working people and the poor, and established a social security system. They organized labor unions, consumer campaigns, and civil rights organizations. They fought for their rights, and they broadened the we in we the people. They built schools, libraries, parks, and playgrounds. They expanded the nation's public infrastructure. They improved the American environment. They cultivated the arts and refashioned popular culture. And though there was still much to be done, they imbued themselves with fresh democratic convictions, hopes, and aspirations. Standing before the American people and their assembled representatives that early January day in 1941, Roosevelt surely believed their rendezvous with destiny had come. Speaking without hesitation, he proceeded to expound upon the profound crisis and mortal dangers facing the United States and to explain how the nation could not just confront them but actually prevail in doing so. Rejecting isolationist arguments that America should simply hunker down behind great defensive walls, he rallied his fellow citizens around a dynamic image of America serving as the great arsenal of democracy. 
and dismissing conservatives' claims that the crisis required them, sorry, that the crisis required Americans to give up their hard-fought-for advances, Roosevelt argued that an effective mobilization required them to not simply sustain their democratic achievements, but also extend and deepen them again, finally articulating America's grandest ideals and strivings anew, the president defined a cause and a generation. In the future days which we seek to make secure, he said, we look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. The first is freedom of speech and expression. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way. The third is freedom from want. The fourth is freedom from fear. Isolationists denounced the president's call to turn the U.S. into the arsenal of democracy, and conservatives rejected his expansive democratic vision. But most Americans responded otherwise. While they may not have been able to recite those freedoms exactly, they backed the call to action, affirmed the promise pronounced, and in the wake of Japan's December 7, 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor, they made freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear, the nation's war aims. In the name of those four freedoms, 16 million Americans of every faith, class, and color put on uniforms and pursued a global struggle we would come to call the good war, not for the character of the combat, but for the rightness of the cause and the unity of purpose in which Americans pursued it. With their allies, they would storm beaches, slog through jungles, tramp across icy fields, sail through submarine-infested waters, fly missions over heavily fortified territories, and punch, push, claw, and ultimately power their way to victory. And contrary to many a later historian's assertion, America's soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen fought not just for their buddies, but also as letters, reports, and memoirs attest for the promise of the four freedoms and for democracy. In late 1944, Harper's editor, Frederick Lewis Allen, would write that Americans had become not simply a united people, but also one possessed of a faith which, with the aid of bulldozers, was able to move mountains. And surely the greatest testament to that faith is that those who most suffered the nation's injustices, America's racial and religious minorities, went all out as much as their fellow citizens if not even more so, determined to secure America's promise against both America's foreign enemies and its own racists and reactionaries, Mexican Americans, Native Americans, and Jewish Americans served in greater numbers proportionally than almost any other groups. And though the African American numbers were limited by official quota and young black men were assigned to segregated military units, one million of them served. Even 22,500 Japanese Americans served, despite the fact that many of their own families were interned in camps. At the same time, Americans at home not only prayed for the safe and sound return of their loved ones, they also went all out as workers and as volunteers to provide the arms and material required for total victory, to maintain the morale, morale and well-being, material well-being of GIs and civilians alike, and to protect and improve what those servicemen and women were defending. Once again, president and people were to test each other, make tragic mistakes and sorry compromises, and suffer serious defeats and disappointments. Nonetheless, they not only prevailed over their enemies, they also again compelled each other to actually enhance 
American democratic life in the process. Needless to say, all of this is laid out in my book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms. I want you to hear the arc, the narrative. Predictably, the right and conservative rich continued to oppose democratic initiatives. Congressional Republicans and Southern Democrats joined together not only to limit the power of labor, but also to block or weaken bills enabling overseas GIs to vote. The Republicans feared that most GIs would vote for FDR. The Southern Democrats feared that blacks would get to vote and actually like it. Concurrently, business executives, anxious about Americans' democratic impulses, but knowing they could not openly oppose the four freedoms, harnessed those freedoms to corporate ads and promotions even as they denied their promise and fervently tried to rewrite them to include freedom of private enterprise. Of course, the right and conservative rich had good reason to worry. Americans were vigorously expanding the labor, consumer, and civil rights movements that they had initiated so vigorously in the 30s. They were subjecting industry and the marketplace to even greater public control. They were reducing inequality and poverty. And though deadly race riots broke out both north and south, Americans were also further transforming the we in we the people. Moreover, the overwhelming majority of Americans endorsed the idea of pursuing new progressive initiatives at war's end. And in my book, I lay out all the statistics. About 85% of Americans wanted a social democratic America after the war. Not only Democrats, not quite equally so, but equally a grand majority of Republicans all of which gave FDR the courage to propose not just a GI Bill of Rights, but also a second Bill of Rights, an economic Bill of Rights to assure freedom from want and fear for all Americans. FDR passed away in April 1945. Germany and Japan surrendered in the months that followed. But the promise of the four freedoms did not expire. Even as the United States began to take off in an unprecedented economic expansion, and to enter into a Cold War struggle with the Soviet Union, most Americans, bolstered by the public investments of the New Deal, the public investments of the war effort, and the massive public benefits of the GI Bill, set out in pursuit of those four freedoms, of that promise. But not all Americans. Not everyone wanted to enhance American democratic life. Conservatives, reactionaries, I know it sounds redundant, and a host of corporate bosses had their own ambitions for post-war America. Determined as ever to reverse the progressive accomplishments of the Roosevelt years, cancel out the promise of the four freedoms, bury the idea of an economic bill of rights, they set themselves anew to containing or suppressing, if not extinguishing, Americans' democratic aspirations and energies. And harnessing the Cold War, not democratic government, Harnessing the Cold War, the House Un-American Activities Committee and McCarthyism to their causes, they enjoyed successes. By the early 1950s, they had tamed liberals, marginalized radicals, and stymied the campaigns of labor and the civil rights movement, not to mention effectively effaced FDR's four freedoms from public debate. And yet, for all of their efforts, they could not get Americans to forget their hard-won victories or the promise that encouraged them. In fact, as Americans continued to make the nation ever stronger and more prosperous, they also pressed freedom, equality, and democracy forward, never as quickly as so many wanted, but always forward. The generation that beat the Great Depression by taking up the labors of the New Deal 
and then defeated fascism by going all out, became a decidedly civic generation, as Robert Putnam has, has dubbed them. They built new communities, churches, schools, and civic associations. They secured higher living standards for themselves and their families. They expanded social security and even began, up north at least, to enact laws banning racial and religious discrimination. Not to mention that they witnessed the Supreme Court's historic decision in Brown v. Board declaring racial segregation in public schools unconstitutional. And when they were seriously challenged in the 1960s to live up to the promise that so many of them had struggled to articulate and advance, they recommitted the nation to doing so. The power of Roosevelt's four freedoms endured. Those who marched for civil rights, campaigned to end poverty, organized public employee unions, pushed to enact health care for the elderly and poor, demanded equal rights for women, reformed the nation's immigration law, expanded public education in the arts, pressed for greater regulation of business and industry to protect the environment, workers, and consumers, and even protested the Vietnam War, did not regularly recite those freedoms, but many did. Moreover, they were not only inspired and informed by the struggles and achievements of the president and people who first proclaimed and fought for those freedoms, they were also called to act anew by men and women of that generation. Labor leaders like A. Philip Randolph, Walter Ruther, Cesar Chavez, Jerry Wirth, civil rights activists such as Ella Baker, James Farmer, and even, yes, Martin Luther King Jr., who was a college student during the war and heard about the four freedoms from his father, from the president of Morehouse College, and from A. Philip Randolph, who came to lecture at the college. Environmentalists like Rachel Carson and Barry Commoner, and feminists such as Esther Peterson and Betty Friedan. In fact, from the Kennedy and Johnson White Houses to the House and Senate, and how I would love to, to list the names here on a roster, those who actually pro proposed and enacted the laws and initiatives that made the decade so truly progressive were themselves most often veterans of the democratic struggles of the 30s and 40s. As you can imagine, my generation, maybe many of you, we think of ourselves as the 60s generation. We made a lot of noise, we pushed hard, and we won some victories. But those who carried out, those who made the victories, real victories, those who enacted those laws, as I was saying, those are our parents, and for many of you, perhaps, your grandparents. Here, I cannot help but note a recent letter to the New York Times from World War II veteran Edward Wood Jr. Responding to a story, you may have all run across this, regarding the question of LBJ's legacy, always controversial, Wood wrote, quote, for my generation of World War II veterans, the social legislation passed under President Lyndon Johnson's leadership helped fulfill some of the ideals we had fought for in that war, expressed in 1941 by President Franklin Roosevelt's Four Freedoms. This is still Ed Edward Wood. I cried from a long-delayed joy when Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. Johnson's other legislation still resonates 50 years later. His initiatives helped create the society we fought for from 1941 to 1945. Undeniably, undeniably, the age of Roosevelt and the progressive pursuit of the four freedoms can seem a very long time ago. But even now, after so many years of conservative political ascendancy and concerted class war from above, more than 30 years of deregulating corporate activity, reducing the taxes of the rich, assailing labor unions, shuttering industries, and neglecting the public infrastructure. 
The progressive legacy of that generation continues to nourish us. Pick any area of American life. The consequences of that generation's commitment to the promise of those freedoms are evident, all of which renders it all the more remarkable that we do not honor those men and women for their progressive struggles and achievements. How is it that the most celebrated generation in American history is not remembered for its most enduring accomplishment and greatest gift to the nation? the embedding of FDR's four freedoms in the very bedrock of American life. That the right and conservative rich continue to work, as they always have, at undoing that generation's greatest democratic achievements is not remarkable. But that liberals and leftists have lost their association with that generation is. In 1997, the FDR memorial was unveiled here we are, unveiled along the tidal basin in Washington, D.C. feel all thrilled by that. And in 2004, the National World War II Memorial was opened on the National Mall. At the same time, millions of Americans snatched up books like Stephen Ambrose's Citizen Soldiers. I'm promoting other people's books here. Nice, right? Tom Brokaw's The Greatest Generation. James Bradley's Flags of Our Fathers. They went to see Steven Spielberg Saving Private Ryan. They sat for hours watching programs such as Ken Burns' PBS documentary, The War, and HBO's Band of Brothers and the Pacific, or at least I did. And they turned out for events both grand and intimate all around the country commemorating a generation's labor and sacrifices. Those memorials, those histories, those ceremonies beautifully honor those who prevailed against the Great Depression and the Axis powers. And yet, even as we have proclaimed our eternal gratitude and promised never to forget them and all that they did, we have failed to remember what made the greatest generation and its greatest leader truly great. At serious cost, not only to the memory and legacy of that generation, but again, as I said, to our own shared prospects and possibilities, we have allowed the public telling of their lives and their struggles to be drained of its most democratic, progressive, and inspiring content. Consider that the greatest generation's leading tribunes, Ambrose, Brokaw, Spielberg, and Burns, made absolutely, absolutely no mention whatsoever of FDR's pronouncement of the Four Freedoms. Go back and take a look. They utterly ignored how a president articulated the nation's promise anew in freedom of speech, worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear. And how a generation went all out in their name, not only to defend American democratic life, but also to enhance it. And they utterly ignored how that president and those people saved the United States from economic destruction and political tyranny and proceeded to turn it into the strongest and richest country in history by harnessing, as I said before, the powers of democratic government and making America freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. Plus, journalists and columnists of every political stripe compounded our amnesia. Like the, to- like the storytellers, they too wrote and spoke as if the lives and histories memorialized in the FDR and World War II monuments had nothing to do with each other, even though I believe they're 0.7 miles apart. They made no mention of how a president and generation mobilized and fought the Great Depression, not by retreating from America's finest ideals, but by working to make those ideals all the more real. They made no mention of how those Americans not only proved to themselves that they could transcend their faults and failings and prevail against daunting challenges, they also reaffirmed what it meant to be American even as they prepared to confront the evils of European fascism and Japanese imperialism. 
And they made no mention of how a generation made the pursuit of the four freedoms their own even before they went to, Europe, went to war in Europe and Asia. Even as pundits and intellectuals marveled at the intensity of their fellow citizens, their fellow citizens' fascination for the greatest generation, they never addressed the democratic significance of it all. Ever anxious about America's democratic impulse, those on the right recognized it and sought to counter it. Sadly, those on the left missed it entirely. They not only failed to appreciate the democratic longings that our admiration for the greatest generation signaled, but actually criticized the celebrations and the popular response to them. Ever since 1933, the right and conservative rich have been working to roll back the progressive achievements of the generation that embraced the four-time elected president. And they have never failed to realize that doing so required suppressing, obscuring, manipulating, and when possible, appropriating the story of the making of American democracy. Echoing their 1930s ancestors, they have accused FDR and his New Dealers of imposing policies not simply inimical to American life, but inspired by fascism and communism, of not just failing to end the Great Depression, but of actually prolonging it, and of not simply enlarging government at the expense of business enterprise, but of hijacking the Constitution and trampling on American freedoms. At the same time, they have strenuously endeavored to disassociate the men and women of the greatest generation from the progressive achievements of the Roosevelt presidency, while enthusiastically celebrating them for their military service and trying to lay claim to their memory and legacy in those narrowed terms. Meanwhile, liberal and left intellectuals reacted to the World War II memory boom with criticisms bordering on condescension. Yes, as they insisted, the greatest generation phenomena until lots of commercial hype. Yes, as they reminded us, both isolationism and racism tragically marked American attitudes and actions in the 1930s and 1940s. And yet, progressive commentators failed to appreciate the democratic legacy and appeal of the men and women of that generation. Indeed, they failed to see that the greatest generation tribunes, Ambrose, Brokaw, and the others, were not making too much of what those men and women did, accomplish, but too little. And consequently, they did nothing to respond to the rights erasure of a generation's progressive struggles and achievements. We Americans did not turn to the past in the 1990s because we wanted to escape the present or because we were fooled into doing so, as so many left intellectuals asserted. In the midst of the most conservative era since the 1920s, you know, these last 40 years, we did so to recall and engage that generation, that memory, that legacy. Sensing that the very meaning of America was in jeopardy, we instinctively did what Americans have always done at such moments. We look back, back to those who most powerfully expressed what it means to be an American. In particular, to those who, confronting mortal crises, made American life, as I said again and again, freer, more equal, and democratic in the process. Some of us did so in the clearest of terms. Responding to the spread of right-wing militia groups and the horrific 1995 attack on the Oklahoma City Federal Building, political activist Chip Burleigh recalled his father's military service and post-war commitments to urge renewed respect for, quote, civil liberties, civil rights, and civil discourse. Berlay acknowledged that his father, a decorated veteran of the Battle of the Bulge, 
a lifelong Republican and an ardent anti-communist had his prejudices. But he noted how the same man refused to allow those attitudes to override the ideals for which he had fought. Berlay proudly recounted that his dad, while serving as a Little League coach in the suburban northern New Jersey town of Hillsdale, I believe it is, actually not far from where I grew up, during the 1950s, that his father recruited an interracial team and a Jewish assistant coach. And when acting as the grand marshal of the Memorial Day parade in the early 1970s, he insisted on the right of protest and peace marches to join in the procession. And the young Berlay then proceeded to relate of his father an exchange that he and his dad had not long before his dad was to die of cancer. My dad, he recalled, was determined my dad, he said, was determined to don his uniform one last time on Memorial Day. As I helped him dress, I asked him about the war. His only reply was to hand me one of his medals. Inscribed on the back were the words, freedom from fear and want, freedom of speech and religion. The four freedoms which, if any of you have a look, I decided to use as the front and back of my book. As Berlay put it, my dad fought fascism to defend those freedoms, not just for himself, but for people of different religions and races, people he disagreed with, even people he was prejudiced against. Today, the four freedoms are under attack, the young Berlay said, in part because we forget why people fought World War II. It becomes all the more critical for us now in the wake of the tragedies, mistakes, disasters, difficulties, and disappointments of the past decade and a half, that we now recall the progressive lives and labors of the generation of the 1930s and 40s and the president who led them. And we apparently want to do so, but doing so is not easy, for we have been led to forget. As powers that be throughout human history have ever been wont to do, our own have regularly sought to shape the telling of the past in favor of limiting American memory and constraining Americans' democratic impulses. And nobody did so, like the actor-turned-conservative politician and president Ronald Reagan. In a famous presidential visit to the beaches of Normandy in 1984 to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the D-Day landings, Reagan spoke movingly of the struggles and of the struggle and actually initiated the greatest generation phenomena. However, contrary to appearances, whenever Reagan spoke of that generation, his own generation, he was seeking not to cultivate remembrance, but to limit it. Ever determined to undo the greatest democratic achievements of his own generation, Reagan didn't just echo the rights wartime call to add a fifth freedom to the four freedoms, he sought to expunge the ideals of freedom from want and freedom from fear altogether. Even to the last, in his farewell address, after recalling his celebrated visit to Normandy and urging greater attention to American memory and the teaching of American history, Reagan told the nation, he audaciously said, quote, Americans need to remember that America is freedom. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of enterprise. An amazing feat, right? And yet, as I explained in the fight for the four freedoms, Reagan could never have spoken as he did 
Hell, he couldn't even have become president if those whom he opposed had not already forgotten or forsaken what made the greatest generation and greatest leader truly great. But of course, none of that excuses us from what we need to do. We Americans cannot afford, we cannot afford to forget our democratic history. As the late political scientist Wilson Carey McWilliams put it, quote, a people's memory sets the measure of its political freedom. Only when we remember what made the greatest generation and its greatest leader truly great, only when we restore to our parents and grandparents their democratic lives and labors, only when we redeem the promise of the four freedoms will we really appreciate why we turn to them as we do and begin to honor them as we should. For only then will we remember who we are. Only then will we remember that the only way, the only way to truly sustain American democratic life is to enhance it. And only then might we too save this nation by making it, once again, as FDR said, fairly radical for a generation. Thank you. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the Schaefer Award Theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on report from 29 districts. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on the rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still lights of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damn relevant, and women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on Search for Tomorrow, because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry R. Woman Liberationist and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Key, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or The Rare Earth. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. 
the revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. You're listening to the KC Morning Show.